You're listening to the weekly podcast with Pastor Steve McCoy from 360 Church in Sarasota, Florida. We hope this message inspires you to press beyond ordinary. So we begin today like they begin an NFL American football game with the flipping of the coin. I did this in the first service. I got it right about here and the lights came in. I completely lost a quarter. So if you find one down there, it's mine. So when they flip the coin in the game, what's the next thing they say? Heads or tails, right? But the challenge is that it's really heads and tails, right? You're only one side up, but a coin wouldn't be heads or tails if it only had heads or it only had tails. So when you look at a coin, there's a duality to it, right? In other words, there, there's both sides and both sides are needed. So I was watching this YouTube video of this, uh, this teenager and he's flipping his corn, a coin on, this, on the table and he's trying to get it to land in a duality position. In other words, on, on its side, not up or down. I'm like, that's just impossible. I just kept watching the kid throw it up on the table, throw it up on the table. I'm like, this guy's wasting his time. I don't know how many hours he tried before he even started filming. But lo and behold, something happened. And I brought you the 11-second clip of victory. Watch this. Watch, the, watch his expression. Slow motion, no sound. Here he is. He's going to reach for it because it hasn't worked 4,000 times. But... <laughs> Isn't that priceless? <laughs> I mean, I think you'd do the same thing. Then he actually, after they went to move the camera and the thing fell, I'm like, no. I think that when we come to our faith as Christ followers or we're beginning to explore God, there's this like, there's a duality to it. It's not heads or tails, it's heads and tails. There's a dual thing happening. And that dual thing, as you're going to see today, is super relieving. It's really, really great news. And so we're going to begin in a book called Titus. It's in, the, it's in the New Testament. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the Apostle Paul wrote a lot of books in the, in the New Testament, letters in, in the original format. Sometimes he wrote to churches like the church at Corinth, Corinthians, the Philippians, the Ephesians, and, and whatnot. Sometimes he wrote to individuals. He wrote to Timothy or Titus or Philemon, etc. So we're going to be in the second chapter of the book of Titus. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's fine. The verses will be up on the screen. We're going to look at this same passage a number of times, just at different angles. But I want us for you to see the power of the duality of Christ followers and for those who are searching for God. Okay, the first thing that you're going to see is a dual a dual view. Okay, dual view. We begin in verse eleven, Titus chapter two. For the grace of God has appeared. That's past tense. Bringing salvation to all for all people. Now, not all people are going to receive that salvation. It's like I'm bringing you a gift. You can open the gift. You can throw the gift away. You can put it under your car tire and run over it. But I'm bringing you the gift. So basically, the grace of God on the cross of Christ was has appeared past tense, offering salvation or bringing salvation for all people. It. What's it? The grace of God that appeared, that brought salvation. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions right now. That's talking present. And to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Second view. While we wait 
for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, future, past, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify him for himself, future and now, present and future, when we stand before God, if we've accepted Christ, we will stand before God righteous as if we've never sinned. He will look through the lenses of Christ's sacrifice and see us as absolute perfect. So in the future, we will pur- he's purified for himself a people that are his very own while we're in the present, very eager to do what's good. You see the, you see the different positions, right? So when you look at this passage, our conversation that we started a couple weeks ago is seeing that Christ is coming back and that promise is there. How then should we live? Instead of getting into the nitty gritty details of how those things are all going to fall, you know, uh, fall out and uh, unravel and all those things, I I believe that is as important for us to understand, well, how we're going to live right now, seeing that Christ is coming. With this dual view, we are invited every day of our life to take up our cross. What does that mean? That means we never forget the price tag of the grace of God that appeared to us in the past on the cross of Christ. If we forget that cost, it's like forgetting the cost of Memorial Day, quite frankly. It's forgetting the the cost of Veterans Day. It's forgetting those who have come behind us. I'm hoping that Memorial Day weekend won't just be a three-day barbecue. That we'll take time to reflect on those who have served and given their lives in the past. In the spiritual world, we do the same thing with Christ. In other words, we don't forget the price tag that was paid while we're in the present and we're looking for the future. You see the dual view? If we forget the dual view, if we're like, man, I'm just so thankful, but I'm not waiting for Christ, I, I, I lose the energy. I'm going to be less eager to do what's good. A Christ follower lives his or her life like this. I'm looking in the past. I'm looking in the future. I'm looking. I'm not going to forget the past. I'm not going to forget the future. And that dual view gives us this sense of living and being eager to do to live for him right now. Let me give an example. My father, some of you uh, shared this story. My father drove for 40 years, 100 miles per day, 50 miles to work, 50 miles back. My father was, let's just say, the nice word would be thrifty, but he was sacrificial for his two boys. In college, when my first year, let's just say, was a lot of fun, uh, a lot of entertainment, a lot of, uh, well, we'll leave it at that. But I remembered that my dad would drink one unnamed cola a week. Some Walmart, we didn't have Walmart back then, but some, you know, no name cola brand. And he would drink about an inch. He would then put a piece of cellophane and a a rubber band around it and put it back in the fridge. And then the next day he'd drink another inch. Same thing. Cellophane, rubber band, back in the fridge. He did that because he wanted to sacrifice to put us in college. If you said, hey, Charlie, his name was Charlie, uh, Charlie Mack, he'd say, hey, Charlie, do you have a Band-Aid? He'd always say, how big's the cut? 
because he had, I still have it in my closet. He had a Band-Aid box. You know, the metal box has a flip top. He had a Band-Aid box and he would cut to, to save on Band-Aids. He would cut the, the Band-Aid down to the size of your cut so he could save the, the other part of the Band-Aid. Yes. When I was in college during my first year, even as an 18, 19 year old, I kept remembering my dad and the cost and my mom putting money aside. My mom was the saver. She would put cash in envelopes. And when the the cash in the envelope was gone, it was gone. We didn't live on credit back then. And in my freshman year, I remembered the cost. And even as an 18, 19-year-old kid that was living for myself, it made me eager to do well in school because I understood that I had a destination, an education, a future to get, but I wouldn't forget my dad's cost. You know what I'm talking about? If we forget the cost of the cross and don't have a dual view of both past and, and future, we will not be eager to live for Christ. That's why in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now presently live, how then should I live in the body? I'm going to live by faith in the Son of God who past tense loved me on the cross, still loves me, and gave himself for me. You know, there's a... Many of you know I travel quite a bit. I like Delta Airlines. The mecca of Delta is Atlanta. I just booked a flight uh, for Ohio. I'm coming out of Nashville. And I thought, well, that'd be a short trip from Nashville to Ohio. Nope, Nashville to Atlanta, back to Ohio. You know, you zigzag around uh, uh, Atlanta. In the Atlanta airport, you know, like most airports, the food is not so great. But there's one restaurant. There's one restaurant, and it's in Terminal E. It's my attraction to the present. So if I, if I get off a plane, I'm doing a connection, I look at my watch, I'm like, you know, I'm in Terminal B, but I got 46 minutes. And then I'm in this, I'm in this kind of struggle. You know, I'm thinking in, in the struggle is like I paid past tense for my plane ticket, so I don't want to lose that. I've got a future destination, but man, is that restaurant calling my name. And I'm standing there in the airport like, I paid for the ticket. I got to go somewhere. I paid for the ticket. I got to go somewhere. But I want to have the food. And so when I think about that struggle, there are so many times that we don't even become aware that the drift is happening and it's drawing us in to the present. Have you noticed that? Politics, COVID, all the things that just draw us into the present, we can forget about that. I lived in Daytona Beach before I lived in Sarasota. And when you first moved to the Atlantic, you know, living on the Atlantic Ocean, it's quite different, actually, than the Gulf of Mexico. You get in here and you're playing around, you're on your raft, blah, blah, blah. And you get out maybe a half a mile down the ocean because there's this thing called the undercurrent. And I had to remind myself that as I, as you get into the Atlantic Ocean, make sure you keep your eyes on the hotel that you're staying in. Otherwise, you're going to get out a half a mile down the, the place. You're going to get out and like, what is that green hotel? I've never seen it before in my life. Listen carefully. If we don't have the dual view to keep us centered, we won't be eager to do what God's given us to do. We need to look in the past. Don't forget the price tag and look in the future. Here's the second thing. 
The second thing is tricky. But I think it's so important for us as Christ followers. It's dual power. Dual power. Watch this. For the grace of God, uh, Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared to us, bringing salvation for all people. Watch now. Let's participate. It teaches who? Us. Good. Now, other than those 17 people, it teaches who? Us. Yes. It teaches us to what? To say no. It's important. File that. Why? To ungodliness and worldly passions. Why? And to what? To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. If you're not careful and you just were to pick up the Bible and read that one verse alone, you're going to feel the weight and the responsibility to get your act together. That the grace of God appeared 2,000 years ago on the cross, and you were to say no to to, uh, ungodliness and worldly passions, and you are also to live a life that is upright, that is self-controlled and godly. If you are trying that on your own and in your own power, your human power, I have two words for you. Good luck. Because here's the dual power that we see in the scripture. The first power is the dangerous gift that God gave us called free will. In other words, the grace of God teaches us, remember, to say no, but not necessarily we have the power in us To live, yes. Here's what I mean. Everybody who is in this room, who is at home, who is outside, who are reading the transcripts, we send the transcripts of our messages into prisons, who are reading or hearing, everybody that's hearing this word has a choice. God gives to us a choice. You remember Cain and Abel. Cain was getting ready to blow it. He was angry. And God came to him and said, sin is crouching at the door. Say no to it. But he didn't necessarily have the power to live a yes life. This is the, this is the relieving part. Those things that we struggle with. Those things that are challenging to us. Those things that are like, ah, man, I've tried over and over and over. God gives us the choice To say no, but we have to surrender to him and his power. So the power of our choice, but his power to say, God, I need the power inside of me from you to live self-controlled, holy, godly lives. It makes sense. It's a dual power. If I'm not willing to say no to worldly passions, God cannot deliver to me the godly living. If I'm only saying uh, yes to everything, God can't say, God can't help me to live that yes toward him. Watch this. In Joshua chapter 24, Joshua is speaking to the people and he said, if serving the Lord seems undesirable for you, if, hey, if this is not going to be your gig. I mean, again, if you're, if you're sitting here today, you're online, you say, no, it's not really my gig to follow God. Well, God has given you that choice. He's not going to make you choose. If serving the Lord seems undesirable for you, then Joshua says, then choose. It is a profound pinnacle on an every human being. Then choose for yourselves this day whom you'll serve. Whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river, he's talking about Abraham and his gods, or the gods of the Amorites who are right with you in whose land you are presently living. But as for me and my household, we're going to choose. 
we are going to choose to serve the Lord. So when, when Paul, the apostle, was writing, the guy was writing to Titus, he writes this. This is where it becomes so powerful. Watch this. Romans 7, verse 18. Paul says, I know that nothing good lives in me. That is my sinful nature, just as I am, right? You buy, you buy something and like you buy just as. So I'm just as I am created. As a human being, I don't have this natural godliness and upright living coming out of me. And then he says, but for I have the desire to do good, to do what is good. In other words, I'm willing to say no, but I cannot carry it out. This is unbelievable, great news. Because in yourself, you might like, man, oh, I've, tried to, I've tried to get over this thing, this behavior, this attitude, this mindset, this, the, I'm, I'm, I'm doing all that, I'm trying. All I'm going to say to you, God, is I have a desire to say no to that. That is the power of my choice. And now I'm going to turn to the power of your spirit within me so that I might live out a self-controlled, godly, and upright life. Don't try it at home if you're just doing it on your own. If you have a desire, this is going to be Jim's story. He had a desire to say no, but he needed the power to live a yes life to God. When I read the scriptures, I began to wrestle even this week with that word self-control. Because the first word is self. Most people say, hey, you got to have more self-control. People think, okay, well, I got to dig in deeper. I got to, you know, human effort. I got to really make it happen. Self-control. But the Bible says something different. Watch this. Paul writing to, to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. He says, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love. And there it is, self-control. In Galatians, there's this, there's this statement about the, 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 uh, the fruit of the outcome of the spirit of God living in us. He says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And there it is, self-control. So even our self-control is powered by the Spirit of God. Where does that put us as we wait for Christ? How then should we live? We should say, God, I'm looking at the cross. Thank you for the price. I'm looking for Christ to come back. But in this present day, I'm saying, God, I'm going to make a choice to say no. But I'm asking you for the power to live a, a yes life to you. Does that make sense? Here's the last thing. It's a dual direction. A dual direction. Again, Titus chapter 2, verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, and here it is, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. We're going to end today with what I'm going to call the scope of maturity. The scope of maturity. Here's what I mean. If you are exploring God, most likely you're wrestling. How do we know that? Because most of us did. You're wrestling with where you've come from. You've wrestled with, I, I really want God, but ah. And, and sometimes in that intersection, at least for me, and I think a lot of people, I'm going to have to give up a lot of stuff. 
If I say if I say yes to God, man, that no part, you know, I'm going to give up a lot of things that are are fun, things that are, you know. Uh, I heard one one pastor say it this way, you know, sin is fun. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't be attractive. I'm not tra- too attractive to eat mud or dirt or you know chew on some rocks, right? I mean, there's no temptation. You're only tempted to things that are pleasurable and fun. In fact, he said, you know, if you're if you're sinning and you're not having fun, you're probably not sinning right. So. I know that sounds crazy, but so I know I'm going to save the emails. Okay, whatever. Or just let's hang out on Friday night. I'll show. I'll tell you. So there's so sometimes in our mind, it, there's at the beginning of our journey with God, there's this like I gotta keep saying no. Oh, really? I can't do that. I can't say that. I can't think that. I can't look at that. And there's a lot of no. In fact, when you look at at the first part of, of verse twelve, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. I'm like, okay, I gotta say no to all that. But something happens as we mature, as this thing happens, and we mature. Watch. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-control, upright, and godly lives, and we're purified for him. Here's, here's what I mean. When you're a parent and you're raising kids, you have to tell them, here's, I wouldn't need you to take out the trash. I don't know, at least unless your kids are different. Oh, thank you, Dad, so much for asking me to take out the trash, right? They're not. They're saying no to a TV show to take out the trash. They're saying no to hanging out with my friends online to take out the trash. They're saying no to do something. But somewhere in our relationship with our parents or our relationship with God, something happens. It's more about saying, not so much about saying no, but it's more about saying yes to God. As we fall in love with God, the no's get a lot easier because our motivation is that we've been purified for God. We've been changed for God. We're trying to live our lives for God and to God. In other words, I'm loving you, God. Whatever it is, I'm giving up. I'm loving you. If you find yourself wrestling your entire Christian faith or exploring God, like, oh, I've got to say another thing. No, i got another no. i got to say another no. I'm inviting you to consider growing to the place like, yes, God, yes. Forget what that is. Yes. And I'm loving God first. And then the no's come easy. Does that make sense? I mean, as a parent, if I'm waiting for that glorious moment when there are dishes, you know, around, you know, apparently put it for a teenager to put a dish in a, in a dishwasher is a miracle. I mean, it's one of the miracles, one of the seven natural wonders of the world. But one day, one day, my friends, they're going to come and say, hey, dad, I noticed some extra plates that weren't mine. Could I put those, you know, in the dishwasher for you? That's why I preemptively take heart medicine. You know, I mean, just in case I have a cardiac arrest right in the moment. I mean, what is that? As we love God, watch, watch what John writes, John 14, verse 23. He says, if anyone, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, then you'll keep my word. John repeats it in 1 John chapter 2, verse 5. He said, ever who keeps my word in him, the love of God and love for God has been ripened. It's been matured. It's been perfected. The scope of maturity. I wonder if you were honest with yourself 
Are you just saying no because you know no is not right? Or have you surrendered and said, God, I want to love you more? We're going to end with Jim's story. I'm going to pray here for just a, just a minute. And I want you to see the power of someone who said no to worldly passions. But equal to that, not heads or tails, but heads and tails, said, God, I'm saying yes to the power of Christ in me. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the amazing and dangerous gift of saying no. And yes, that choice that you've given, this, that free will that you've given. And we thank you, God, for the power of Christ because he's come back from the dead. He has the power to give to us a, a, the ability, the capacity to live lives that are eager to do good and to love you. And so, Father, as we hear Jim's story, just in his particular struggle, God, I pray that you'll reflect that into our own lives with our own particular unique struggle. In Jim's case, this is, a, this is something unwanted. He, he was saying no. And God, we all have those things in our life that are unwanted. So we, I pray, God, that you will empower us. How then should we live as we wait for the blessed appearance of our King, our Savior? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a look. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, for the most part. And growing up, I, I will tell you um, that I didn't feel like I was, I always felt a little different than my dad, than different than other boys even. And I think it started with my dad. It started with feeling different than I wasn't the same personality at all. When I was 14, I came to Christ. When I was 16, I felt called to ministry. and. I went and talked to a couple of sought the counsel of my pastor and my youth pastor, both, and, and they were very supportive. So I was very active in ministry and pursuing ministry and pursuing the Lord. I will tell you part of that journey though, in that the underlying tension was that I was attracted to guys. Now, I also was dating during those times. I dated girls throughout high school. And I fell in love. I had a girlfriend for, for, for one girlfriend for four years. And Susie and I were intensifying talking about getting married. And my dad said that I probably shouldn't get married because I, I'm going to be a preacher. And she had champagne taste. I would be on a beer budget were his words. What I heard, that's what he said. What I heard was I would never be man enough to be a husband to any woman or father to any children. And it was my misunderstanding and reception of the words he used that made these same-sex attraction intensify. So I broke up with her, I left school, I left any ministry that I was doing and moved to Atlanta, where I was from, and thought, I'll figure it out here. There'll be people that don't know me and then my pride won't be involved and we'll figure out what to do with these attractions. I knew they were wrong. I begged God to take them away. I pulled away from the Lord too in those moments. I, I immersed myself in the gay lifestyle because I couldn't process this through the church. And I felt like it for several reasons, them and my, and my own pride. And I stayed away from the Lord then for 30 years. 
My life became revolving around drinking, around uh, sex, around one night stands, uh, going to bars and seeking what I could and just trying to navigate that because I just was so miserable and I just desperately wanted connection. I, I thought if I could if I could find that long-term relationship with someone that God might actually approve of that if they had the same values and if we were, were committed to each other. That was sort of my goal. I did find that long-term relationship. I found a couple of them I thought were going to be. Then I finally found this one that was it ended up in 20 year, 23 years worth. God started pursuing us as things got so bad that everything I had, everything I owned after, after 23 years of a relationship, after owning several homes together, things got so bad that I actually had to walk away from everything, pack up a car and move, move in with his mother. And there came a point in in life, with life, and I hit rock bottom. And as a friend offered to help and, and help me find, explore Christianity again, basically, he offered to bring another guy in named Doug and said, he's a really good Bible teacher. He is, he's a compassionate guy. He'll help in so many ways, but I think you really connect and it'll also help you understand God better. Driving over to meet Robert and Jim for the first time in person, I am super nervous. So as I'm coming up and I'm walking up to the door, I'm getting ready to go in, it's the, you know, Doug, you love these men like I love you. Just as clear as day to my heart from the Lord. And that prepared me for what was about to happen as I walked through the door and I had my Bible. And this is the Bible that uh, Jim has referred to a number of different times as the Bible with legs came through the door. What I felt and saw in my mind as I remember it was a big black Bible with legs walking toward me. I didn't see a man. I saw a Bible with legs ready to condemn. And so I began, of course, like I thought it would happen and I would open my Bible and we started talking about the specific passages of the scripture that weren't really compatible with homosexuality. So we started refuting. We argued back and forth a bit about this, about the scripture. And, and just, I wasn't moving off my dime. No, you can't tell me that that means this. You can't tell me that, that uh, I'm just like a murderer or a liar or a cheater. You can't tell me that God's talking about that in the context of, of true love between two people. I shut my Bible and I laid it aside and I said, you guys need to forgive me. I have jumped into the Bible without even getting to know who am I talking to? Jim and Robert, I don't even know who you are. Let's just begin with me getting to know the two of you as men. And that changed the conversation. All of a sudden I've seen a man sitting in front of me now. <laughs> I don't see just the Bible, just an issue. I see this guy and he is saying he's sorry. And I'm like, whoa, that's crazy. Men just don't do that anywhere. He said, I'd like to get to know you guys. And with that, we began to trust him. And, and then he started, I finally asked him, well, tell me more about your faith. Tell me about your church. Tell me about this. And I, because I wanted God. I wanted to come back to God. I was hungry. So I asked my partner's mother, who's a little Southern lady. She was probably 75 at the time and, and just the sweetest person. She was so strong in her convictions. I asked her what, what to do because I couldn't get close to God. And I expressed what I was doing. And she just looked at me in this sweet Southern voice said, well, GM, you think it's a gay thing? 
And I gotta tell you, those sweet words smacked, just, just drove a dagger in my heart because I, I didn't wanna have to face that. I was I'd been trying to figure out what to do with this thing. But I realized that night I went to the Bible. I went to scripture and of course, Romans 1 opened up. Thank you, Lord. And it was Romans 1, 26 and 27. I couldn't refute anymore that this was an abomination, that I could not live a gay life and live in God's will. I got on my knees that night and just surrendered. I asked for forgiveness, and I asked to teach me to be the man he designed me to be. I didn't know about the gay feelings. I didn't know what to do with that, but I wouldn't act on them. That was my that was my answer to God with that. The big difference in that and when I was a teenager begging God to take it away was I didn't want to work through it as a teenager. I just wanted him to take it away. It wasn't a surrender. It was a take it away. This was the difference of surrender to God, saying, I will, I experience it. I don't know what to do with it, but I will not act on it. I surrender that to you. Father, would you teach me to be the man you designed me to be? That's when he kicked in. That's when the growth God came in and started creating a new man. Breakthrough is a ministry that started at 360 Church that welcomes those with same-sex attraction to come to a safe place to understand where they're at, What's the process of connecting and knowing God better and more? And Jim has provided that ministry at our church. The name Breakthrough comes from the idea that when we come to Christ, we're a new creation. We carry a lot of baggage with us that we come. So the visual is two open doors out. And that is our logo because we feel that once you come to Christ, you have a lot of work to do to overcome past behaviors, past identities, and it requires one-to-one, small circle, pull up a chair. We're in the thick of it with you, discipleship. And it's a discipleship aspect. It's not, it's not we're here to help keep you from acting out. It's that discipleship relationship that builds what we call the community that then helps them fall into the larger community. The beauty of it is when you have somebody who's coming from a gay identity developing a discipleship relationship with somebody who's never experienced it, but cares enough to say, we're going to show you what God intended. There's such a healing piece of it. Thank you for joining us and special thanks for those of you who give generously to make this ministry possible. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can also subscribe or share it with your friends. For more information about 360 Church, visit us at the360church.com.